welcome to Auto Magazine. This is your host, Aliana Snake, coming to you live. This is our very first episode in our very first segment for our very first book. I am so excited, guys. It is ridiculous. Now, today, for this segment, I'm going to be reading The Hypnotist by a couple who goes by the pen name Lars Kepler. It is supposed to be a murder mystery book based on hypnosis, I guess. I'm not sure. I've never read this book, and I don't know if any of you have. I'm hoping some of you have. It's supposed to be a good book. It was in a thrift shop when I found it, and for some reason, the scissors on the front caught my attention, and then the name and the description of the book just made me want to read it. And then I felt that reading it wasn't enough. I had to share it with you guys. But, you know, before we get to the wholehearted sharing thing, let us do the daily quote. Now, I'm going to spend two different wheels. One is to find out which app I am using, and one is to find out which section in such app I am using. So let's see which app I'm using. Alrighty, I'm using the Lessons in Life app. And let's see. Alright. So, from the Lessons in Life app, we are going to be doing an action quote. Alrighty. Let's see. Alright, today's quote is, when it is obvious that the goals cannot be reached, don't adjust the goals, adjust the action steps. That is interesting. Interesting Interestingly insightful. Alright, guys. We've got that out of the way, and... Stay tuned in for the rest of the episode, and we will have another amazing quote at the end before we depart and say our goodbyes. But until then, let us start this murder mystery book, The Hypnosis. Prologue. Like fire. Just like fire. Those were the first words the boy uttered under hypnosis. Despite life-threatening injuries... Innumerable knife wounds to his face, legs, torso, back, the soles of his feet, the back of his neck, and his head. The boy had been put into a state of deep hypnosis in an attempt to see what had happened in his own eyes. I'm trying to blink, he mumbled. I go into the kitchen, but it isn't right. There's a crackling noise beside the chair, and a bright red fire is spreading across the floor. They'd thought he was dead when they'd found him among the other bodies in the Terrence house. He'd lost a great deal of blood, gone into a state of shock, and hadn't regained consciousness until seven hours later. He was the only surviving witness. Detective Juna Lena was certain the boy would be able to provide valuable information, possibly even identify the killer. But if the other circumstances had not been so exceptional... It would never even had occurred to anyone to turn to a hypnotist. 
Chapter 1 Tuesday, December 8th, early morning. Eric Maria Bark is yanked reluctantly from his dream when the telephone rings. Before he is fully awake, he hears himself say with a smile, Balloons and streamers. His heart is pounding from the sudden awakening. Eric has no idea what he meant by these words. The dream is completely gone, if he had ever remembered it. He fumbles to find the ringing phone, creeping out of the bedroom with it and closing the door behind him to avoid waking Simone. A detective named Juna Lena asked if he was su sufficiently awake to observe important information. His thoughts are still tumbling down into the dark, empty space after his dream as he listens. I've heard you're very skilled in the treatment of acute trauma, says Lena. Yes, says Eric. He swallows a painkiller as he listens. The detective explains that he needs to question a 15-year-old boy who has witnessed a double murder and been seriously injured himself. During the night, he was moved from the neurological unit in Hundinji to the neurosurgical unit in Karlinska University Hospital in Solona. What's his condition? Eric asked. The detective rapidly summarizes the patient's status, concluding he's been he hasn't been stabilized. He is in circulatory shock and unconscious. Who's the doctor in charge? asked Eric. Danella Richards. She's extremely capable. I'm sure she can. She was the one who asked me to call you. She needs your help. It's urgent. When Eric returns to the bedroom to get his clothes, Simone is lying on her back, looking at him with a strange, empty expression. A strip of light from the street lamp is shining in between the blinds. I didn't mean to wake you, he says softly. Who was that? she asked. Police? A detective? I didn't catch his name. What's it about? I have to go to the hospital, he replies. They need some help with a boy. What time is it anyway? She looks at the alarm clock and closes her eyes. He notices the stripes on her freckled shoulders from the creased sheets. Sleep now, Sixan, he whispered, calling her by her nickname. Carrying his clothes from the room, Eric dresses quickly in the hall. He catches the flash of a shining blade of steel behind him and turns to see that his son has hung his ice skates on the handle of the front door so he won't forget them. Despite his hurry, Eric finds the protectors in the closet and slides them over the sharp blades. It's three o'clock in the morning when Eric gets into his car. Snow falls slowly from the black sky. There is not a breath of wind, and the heavy flakes settle sleepily on the empty street. He turns the key in the ignition, and the music pours in like a soft wave. Miles Davis king of blue kind of blue he drives the short distance through the sleeping city out of Lumatagargatan along Sevain to North Tool he catches a glimpse of waters in Brunsviken a large dark opening behind the snowfall. He slows 
he slows as he enters the enormous medical complex maneuvering between astrid linger lingern's understaffed hospital and maternity unit past the radiology and psychiatric departments to park in his usual place outside the neurological unit there are only a few cars in the visitor's lot the glow of the street lamp is reflected in the windows of the tall building and blackbirds rustle through the branches of the trees in the darkness usually you hear the roar of a super highway from here eric thinks but not at this time of night he inserts his pass card keys in the six-digit code enters the lobby takes the elevator to the fifth floor and walks down the hall the blue vinyl floors shine like ice and the quarters smell of antiperspirant antiseptic only now does he become aware of his fatigue of his fatigue following the sudden surge of adrenaline brought on by the call it had been such a good sleep he still feels a pleasant aftertaste he thinks over what the detective told him on the phone a boy is admitted to the hospital bleeding from cuts all over his body sweating he doesn't want to lie down is restless and extremely thirsty an attempt is made to question him but his condition rapidly deteriorates his level of consciousness declines while at the same time his heartbeat begins to race and daniela richards the doctor in charge makes the correct decision not to let the police speak to the patient two ununiformed cops are standing outside of the door of ward n18 eric senses a certain unease flit across their faces as he approaches maybe they're just tired he thinks as he steps in front of them and identifies himself they glance at his id press a button and the door swings open with a hum daniela richards is making note notes on a chart when eric walks in as he greets her he notices the tense lines around her mouth the muted stress in her movements have some coffee she says do we have time asked eric i've got the bleed in the liver under control she replies a man of about forty-five dressed in jeans and a black jacket is something the coffee machine he has tousled brown hair and his lips are serious clamped firmly together eric thinks maybe this is daniela's husband magnus he has never met him he has only seen a photograph of her photograph in her office is that your husband he asked waving his hand in the direction of the man what she looks both amused and surprised i thought maybe magnus had come with you no she says with a laugh i don't believe you teases eric's starting to walk toward the man i'm going to ask him daniela's cell phone rings and still laughing she flips it over saying stop it eric before answering daniela richards she listens but hears nothing hello she waits for a few seconds then shrugs hola she says ironically and flips the phone shut eric has walked over the blonde man the coffee machine is whirring and hissing have some coffee says the man trying to hand eric a mug no thanks the man smiles revealing small dimples in his cheeks and takes a sip himself delicious he says trying to once again to force a mug on eric i don't want any the man takes another sip studying eric could i borrow your phone he asks suddenly if that's okay i left mine in the car and now you want to borrow mine eric says 
stiffly. The blonde man nods and looks at him with pale eyes as gray as polished granite. You could borrow mine again, says Daniello, who has come up behind Eric. He takes the phone, looks at it, then glances up at her. I promise you'll get it back, he says. You're the only one who's using it anyway, she jokes. He laughs and moves away. He must be your husband, says Eric. Well, a girl can dream, she says with a smile, glancing at the lanky fellow. Suddenly, she looks very tired. She's been rubbing her eyes. A smudge of gray silver eyeliner smears her cheek. Shall I have a look at the patient? asks Eric. Please, she nods. As I'm here anyway, he hastens to add. Eric, I really do want your opinion. I'm not all that sure about this one. Chapter 2 Tuesday, December 8th, early morning. Daniela Richards opens the heavy door, and he follows her into a warm recovery room leading off the operating theater. A slender boy is lying on the bed. Despite his injuries, he has an attractive face. Two nurses work to dress his wounds. There are hundreds of them, cuts and stab wounds all over his body, on the soles of his feet, on his chest and his stomach, on the back of his neck, on the top of his scalp, on his face. His pulse is weak, but very rapid. His lips are as gray as aluminum. He is sweating, and his eyes are tightly closed. His nose looks as if it is broken. Beneath the skin, a bleeding is spreading like a dark cloud from his throat and down over his chest. Daniela begins to run through the different stages of the boy's treatment so far, but it's silenced by a sudden knock at the door. It's the blonde man again. He waves to them through the glass, glass pane. Okay, says Eric. If he isn't Magnus, who the hell is that guy? Daniela takes his arm and guides him from the recovery room. The blonde man has returned to his spot by the hissing coffee machine. A large cappuccino, he says to Eric. You might need one before you meet the officer who was first on the scene. Only now does Eric realize that the blonde was the detective who woke him up less than an hour ago. His draw was not as noticeable on the telephone, or maybe Eric was just too sleepy to register it. Why would I want to meet him? So you'll understand why I need to question... Juna Lena falls silent as Daniela's mobile starts to ring. He takes it out of his pocket and glances at the display, ignoring her outstretched hand. It's probably for him anyway, mutters Daniela. Yes, Junas is saying. No, I want him here. Okay, but I don't give a damn about that. The detective is smiling as he listens to his colleague's objections. Although I have noticed something, he chips in. The person on the other end is yelling. I'm doing this my way, Junas says calmly and ends the conversation. His hands on the phone, back to Daniela with a silent nod of thanks. I have to question this patient, he explains in a serious tone. I'm sorry, says Eric. My, assign my assessment is the same as Dr. Richard's. When will he be able to talk to me? asked Juna. Not while he's in shock. I knew you'd say that, says Juna quietly. The situation is still extremely critical, explains Daniela. His plural sac is damaged and the small intestines the liver and a policeman wearing a dirty dirty uniform comes in his expression uneasy juna waves and walks over and shakes his head he says something in a low voice and the police officer wipes his mouth and glances apprehensively at the doors 
at the doctor's. I know you probably don't want to talk about this right now, says Juna, but it could be very useful for the doctors to know the circumstances. Well, says the police officer, clearing his throat feebly, we hear on the radio that a janitor's found a dead man in the toilet at the playing field in Tumba. Our patrol car is already on Hindengavan, Jigavane, so we need... So all we need to do is turn and head up towards the lake. We figured it was an overdose, you know. Jan, my partner, he goes inside while I talk to the janitor. Turns out to be something else altogether. Jan comes out of his locker room. His face is completely white. He doesn't even want me to go in there. So much blood, he says three times. And then he just sits down on the steps. The police officer falls silent, sits in a chair, and stares straight ahead. Can you go on? asks Juna. Yes. The ambulance shows uh, the dead man is identified, and it's my responsibility to inform the next of kin. We're a bit short-staffed, so I have to go alone. My boss says she doesn't want me, doesn't want to let Jan go out in this state. You can understand why. Eric glances at the clock. You have time to listen to this, says Juna. The police officer goes on, his eyes lowered. The decrease. The deceased is a teacher at the high school of Tumba, and he lives in the department up by the ridge. I ring the bell three or four times, but nobody answered. I don't know what made me do it, but I went around the whole block and shined my flashlight through a window at the back of the house. The police officer stops, his mouth trembling, and begins to scrape at the arm of the chair with his fingernail. Please, go on, says Juna. Do I have to? I mean, I... I... You found the boy, the mother, and the little girl age five. The boy, Joseph, was the only one who was still alive. Although I didn't think, he falls silent, his face ashen. Juna relents. Thank you for coming, Erland. The police officer nods quickly and gets up, runs his hand over his dirty jacket in confusion, and hurries out of the room. They had all been attacked with a knife, Juna Lena says. It must have been sheer chaos in there. The bodies were... They were in terrible state. They'd been kicked and beaten. They'd been stabbed, of course, multiple times, and the little girl... She had been cut in half. The lower part of her body from the waist down was in the armchair in front of the TV. His composure finally seems to give. He stops for a moment, staring at Eric before regaining his calm manner. My feeling is that the killer knew the father was at the playing field. There had been a soccer match. He was a referee. The killer waited until he was alone before murdering him. Then he started hacking up the body, in a particularly aggressive way, before going to the house to kill the rest of the family. It happened in that order? asked Eric. In my opinion the detective. Eric can feel his hand shaking as he rubs his mouth. Father, mother, son, daughter, he thinks very slowly. Before meeting Juno Lena's gaze, the perpetrator wanted to eliminate the entire family. Juno raises an eyebrow. That's exactly it. A child is still out there, the big sister. She's 23. We think it's possible the killer is after her as well. That's why we want to question the witness as soon as possible. I'll go in and carry out a detailed examination, says Eric. Juno nods. But we can't risk the patient's life by... I understand that. It's just 
that the longer it takes before we have something to go on, the longer the killer has to look for the sister. Now, Eric nods. Why don't you locate the sister? Warn her. We haven't found her yet. She isn't in her apartment in Sunbyberg or at her boyfriend's. Perhaps you should examine the scene of the crime, says Daniela. That's already underway. Why don't you go over there and, and tell them to get a move on, she says irritably. It's not going to yield anything anyway, says the detective. We're going to find the DNA of hundreds, perhaps thousands of people in both places, all mixed together. I'll go in a moment and see the patient, says Eric. Juna meets his gaze and nods. If I could ask just a couple more questions, that might be all that's needed to save his sister. Chapter 3 Tuesday, December 8th, early morning. Eric Maria Bart returns to the patient. Standing in front of the bed, he studies his pale, damaged face, the shallow breathing, the frozen gray lips. Joseph. Eric says the boy's name, and something passes painfully across the face. Joseph, he says once again quietly, my name is Eric Maria Bark. I'm a doctor, and I'm going to examine you. You can nod if you like, if you understand what I'm saying. The boy is lying completely still, his stomach moving in time with his short breaths. Eric is convinced that the boy understood his words, but the level of consciousness abruptly drops. Contact is broken. When Eric leaves the room half an hour later, both Daniela and the detective look at him unexpectedly. Eric shakes his head. He's our only witness, Juno repeats. Someone has killed his father, his mother, and his little sister. The same person is almost certainly on the way to his older sister right now. We don't know that, Daniela snaps. Eric raises a hand to stop the bickering. We understand it's important to talk to him, but it's simply not possible. We can't just give him a shake and tell him his whole family is dead. What about hypnosis, says Juno, almost offhandedly. Silence falls in the room. No, Eric whispers to himself. Wouldn't hypnosis work? I don't know anything about that, Eric replies. How could that be? You yourself were a famous hypnotist. The best I heard. I was a fake, says Eric. That's not what I think, says Juna, and this is an emergency. Daniela flushes and, smiling inwardly, studies the floor. I can't, says Eric. I'm actually the person responsible for the patient, says Daniela, raising her voice, and I'm not particularly keen on letting him be hypnotized. But if it wasn't dangerous for the patient in your judgment, says Juna. Eric now realizes that the detective has been thinking of hypnosis as a possible shortcut right from the start. Junalina has asked him to come to the hospital purely to convince him to hypnotize the patient, but not because he is an expert in treating acute shock and trauma. I promised myself I would never use hypnosis again, says Eric. Okay, I understand, says Juna. I had heard you were the best, but I have to respect your decision. I'm sorry, says Eric. He looks at the patient through the window in the door and turns to Daniela. Has he been given desmofrin? No. I thought I'd wait a while, she replies. Why? The risk of thimboalic complications. I've been following the diet uh, debate, but I don't agree with the concerns. I give my son desmoprifen all the time, says Eric. How is Benjamin doing? He must be, what, 15 now? 14, says Eric. Juna sits up laboriously in his chair. 
I'd be grateful if you could recommend another hypnotist, he says. We don't even know if the patient is going to regain consciousness, replies Daniela. But I'd like to try. And he does have to be conscious in order to be hypnotized, she says, pursing her mouth slightly. He was listening when Eric was talking to him, says Juna. I don't think so, she murmurs. Eric disagrees. He could definitely hear me. We could save his sister, Juna goes on. I'm going home now, says Eric quietly. Give the patient desmophrin and think about trying the pressure chamber. As he walks towards the elevator, Eric slides out of his white coat. There are a few people in the lobby below. The doors have been unlocked. The sky has lightened a little. As he pulls out of the parking lot, he reaches for the little wooden box he carries with him. Great, garishly decorated with parrot and a smiling South Seas native. Without taking his eyes off the road, he flips open the lid, picks out three tablets, and swallows them quickly. He needs to get a couple of hours of sleep yet this morning before waking Benjamin and giving him his injection. So, guys, that's going to be it for today. I've got dry mouth, and I have just started to realize that a lot of the words in this book I'm not going to be able to properly say because of the fact that, well, I only speak English, I only read English, and not, not, not Swedish <laughs> of any sort. And a lot of the town names and a lot of the people's names are in Swedish, so if I don't say them right, then please don't hate, because, like, I can't, I can't say them physically, and I don't have the capacity in my head to learn. I, I'm, I'm not very good at learning other languages, so from here on, I think this will be my only foreign book, because the rest of them are in English. No, no Spanish, no, no anything but English, <laughs> except for this one. But it is a good book so far. I'm actually liking it, though I'm not exactly sure yet what I think of the main character, Eric. He seems a bit, a bit like a guy who rushes a lot. But, I don't know. Um, yeah. So, anyway, let's just get to the, uh, let's get to the, uh, quote. The last quote of the day. So, we're gonna do the spin the wheel thing again. Pick a different app and then pick another section from said app. I've got, like, five of them. Five or six or something like that. So, let's see. We are going to be using my Attitude Quotes app. Ooh, I like that app. That app's pretty good sometimes. But not not most of the time. I'll be honest. Alrighty. And our section. We are going to go to the Attitude app and do a quote on smiles. I don't ask, because I don't know either. But that's what we picked. Alright, our quote is, When life gives you a hundred reasons to cry, show life that you have a thousand reasons to smile. I like that one. A lot of people I know could be taking that one into consideration. 
a lot of people could use some inspiration and some knowledge like that. And that's why I believe that these quotes are important for you guys. And possibly for myself. You never know. So, anyway, I will chillaz with you guys next time. And until then, ciao